Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1062. This is a very special episode. Today is Earth Day that this is going up, April 22nd. So uh, I am putting up this podcast with Dr. Jane Goodall, which I recorded yesterday. And uh, she, we, we did video conferencing. She's in the UK right now. And it was, it, it, this was an incredibly inspiring and meaningful conversation uh, with her. She is such a beautiful soul. Just turned 86 a couple of weeks ago and, um, and, and busier than she's ever been. I think one of the things that's so incredible is that when you're talking to her, uh, because we could see each other, obviously, it's you. You can see the empathy that she has for literally all living creatures, <laughs> and you can see it in her eyes. And one of the things that we that she goes back to that we talk about in the podcast is that she is just lives in the moment. She's incredibly present, and you can see the presence and you can feel it. And when she's talking to you, she's really focused on you and it it was uh it it was really incredible Th- this will go down as 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 one of my uh, all-time favorites it, we um uh had a, c- a little technical glitch at the top cuz we were trying to if for some reason the f- the the software was muted on her end so you know at the top of the podcast when we're talking about like oh you're 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 not muted we I can hear you we can hear each other that that's what that is but uh wow she was just so great she's promoting uh, her new documentary on Nat Geo which is available now um it's called Jane Goodall the Hope and so, yeah, so go go watch that. Lydia and I watched it the other night. It was just spectacular. I mean, seriously, the, the things that she has accomplished. Um, and, you know, she just does things. She doesn't, when, you know, when constantly she's uh, taken paths in life that, that, that people have said, oh, you can't do that. that that's not possible. And she, she just does it anyway. She figures it out. And she proves them wrong. And, and she does that because it's something that's important to her. And it's important to the world. <laughs> so I highly recommend you watch the documentary uh, after, you, after you listen to the podcast. And, we, you know, we – and also she's just so sweet. You know, we uh, – afterwards we were talking um, so like after we finished the podcast about uh, – uh, you know, I'm I'm going to make a donation to the Institute. I was inspired to make a donation to her Institute after we talked. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the work she's doing or the work her Institute is doing or the the program for children, Roots and Shoots, that she started, you can go to janegoodall.org. So we were talking about pop culture and sort of television and stuff. And she said, oh, I don't really, I don't really have time to go see movies. I, you know, when I, if I do watch TV, it's usually like a nature documentary. Uh, but if I really want to relax, I watch Agatha Christie or Poirot. And it just, it just seemed so perfect, so wonderful. And uh, anyway, I sincerely hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed uh, having the conversation and that it that it inspires you uh, in a myriad of ways. And the last thing I'll say is that in 1997, yours truly was a contestant on Celebrity Jeopardy. The first question that I buzzed in on and got right, she was the scientist who lived in the forest with the chimpanzees to study them. Who is Jane Goodall? Yes, so it all came back around 
23 years later. It's possible I'm reading too much into the connection of that. At any rate, I'm very proud to say that this is the ID10T episode number 1062 with Dr. Jane Goodall. Initiating ID10T protocol. <laughs> We're feverishly typing, like, maybe it's a preference and a setting. We're trying to troubleshoot. Oh, you got it to work. I'm so glad. Well, suddenly I've got a thing which wasn't there before saying mute, so I unmute it. <laughs> that wasn't there before. That's what I'm used to. You know, technology is supposed My- to make our lives simpler, and it just complicates things. all the time. <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been so busy in my entire life. Never. Which is ironic considering that you probably aren't leaving your house. I mean, I'm assuming you're not leaving your house a whole lot. No, just walking the dog for 30 minutes. But I'm on morning till night doing video messaging and podcasts and interviews and Skypes and Zooms and it doesn't stop. Do you prefer the nonstop travel or or do you actually find that you're weirdly busier this way? Much busier this way. I mean, it's a constant, you know, having to be with it and answer questions and and think of messages to send out. Whereas on the lecture tour, okay, there's lectures and there's an interview here and there's an interview there, but in between, you know, and then plane journeys, if you want to, you can just do nothing. Right. Anyway, I'm still alive and I'm well. What about you? I'm we're good. You know, we're we're very fortunate. Um we, you know, we have the things we need. We had just gotten a puppy a couple of weeks before the quarantine, so we're very focused on him. And, yeah. And so that's that's been that's been really nice. Um what's a good uh, what, what what's a good I I notice in a lot of your lectures you you do some chimpanzee greetings. What's a good chimpanzee greeting? <laughs> And and does that specifically mean something? Do you understand that? Yeah, that means this is me, Jane. They all have a different pantoot. Really? It's the distance greeting. So when they're in proximity, they essentially let each other know, this is me, don't kill me. That That's from far away. If you're close up, you go... <laughs> Oh, wow. I've even got Mr. H with me, you know, my little mascot. Oh, look at him. Yeah. Where did he come from? 25 years old now. He's been to 65 countries. Oh, my gosh. And is that basically the piece of home that you take with you everywhere? This was given to me by a man called Gary Horn, who lost his eyesight at 21. Um, Thought he was giving me a stuffed chimp. I made him hold the tail. He said, take him with you, and you know I'm with you in spirit. He does 
scuba diving, cross-country skiing, skydiving. He's taught himself to paint. Oh, wow. And he painted the most amazing portrait of Mr. H, although he's only ever felt him. That's incredible. And so Mr. Yeah. H accompanies you to all the countries and everything. He's my symbol for the indomitable human spirit. Well, I, I just seeing how much you normally travel, that you're literally 300 days a year, you're traveling. I, I'm, you know, I was watching the documentary and there was a brief moment where you said, you know, I, I believe it was in the UK, your home there where that, okay, this is home. But do you feel a sense of home anywhere? Are you ever able to, you know, in a pre-quarantine era, ever f- able to feel a sense of home? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the house I grew up in. It was my grandmother's house, and we came here. Mum, my sister, and I came here in the war mm-hmm. when I was five, and that's this is where I grew up. The books I read as a child, I have with me. The trees outside are what I used to climb, and um, it's my roots. My sister lives in it permanently with her family, and I come between tours. From what from the documentary, it looks like you just have this really sweet attic space with like with a bed right next to a window. Is that is that accurate? That's where I am right now. Oh wow! Oh yeah, I can see the bookshelves and all the pictures and everything. It's astonishing yeah. to me that uh, I think the thing that struck me a lot was your mom seemed like she was an amazing woman because it seems like. She was incredible because it seemed like, you know, in the 1940s, she was encouraging you to do things that were not generally things that women were thought to do. And she it seemed like she encouraged you to pursue your passion, but also warned you like, this is going to be a lot of work. It, can you just sort of talk about having that influence in your life at that time in the context of that? Because it, it seems pretty remarkable. Well, it is. And, you know, the thing is, I was born loving animals. And I had a mother who supported me. So when I was one and a half and she found a whole lot of worms in my bed, she said, Jane, it looked as though you were wondering, how do they walk without legs? <laughs> and um, instead of getting angry, she just said, I think we put them out or they might die. Mm-hmm. And then she didn't get angry when I disappeared for four hours staying on a farm in the country, even though she'd actually called the police after four hours. <laughs> I was sitting in a hen house waiting for a hen to lay an egg. So, you know, things like that. And then when I dreamed of going to Africa, I was eight, no, ten. Eight, I met Dr. Doolittle. Ten, I read Tarzan of the Apes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when my dream began. I will go to Africa, live with wild animals, and write books about them. Not thinking of being a scientist, of course, because women weren't. In fact, nobody was going out living with animals and writing books about them in the wild. So everybody laughed at me, don't have money, war's raging, Africa's far away, you're just a girl. But mom said, if you really want this, yes, you're going to have to work very hard. Um, Take advantage of every opportunity. And if you don't give up, maybe you'll find a way. So, and then, you know, she supported me right through all sorts of difficult times. I mean, it the the idea that it just seems like there was the perfect cocktail for you to be the perfect person to do all of these things because it's not it's not only the commitment and the science, but also there's such a humanity behind at least how it seems that you approach the world. And time after time, 
there are all these obstacles that seem like most other people would give up or that you're doing things that are sort of revolutionary in the field and people are going, no, that you can't do that. You can't do that. But then something about you just keeps marching forward in a very calm, but confident way. And so was that, was that innate? Did you have to learn that? Or was that something that your parents instilled in you? No, it was just innate. I mean, I'm obstinate, stubborn. Um, I don't want to give in. More like a Russian doll, knock me over and I'll spring up again. <laughs> and, you know, the more that some of these male scientists, and, and they were all men back then, really, in my field, not quite, but most of them. And the more that they criticized, the more I thought, well, my mother taught me, if somebody disagrees, number one, listen to them because maybe they've got some points you haven't thought of. Mm -hmm. But if you still think that you're right or brighter than them, then you must have the courage of your conviction. But it was born into me. That, that idea, though, of listening to people, even when you don't agree with them, is, seems so antithetical to what our culture is right now, which is, you know, we, we sort of live in a, everyone lives in their own little confirmation bias bubble and anyone who doesn't agree with that is the enemy. And I, I, I was just so moved. I, I, yes, just like this, you know, and I, I, my hope is that part of what people take away from you and your message and your work and your documentary is exactly what you just said, which is like, even if you don't agree with someone, listen to them, because how else can we find common ground or how else can we determine which direction we're going to go in or even hope to do good if we're just clashing? And also, you know, I've discovered there's no point hammering in here. Right. You've got to get to the heart. And the only way I've found to get to the heart is one, to take a little moment to have a feeling for who you're talking to. You know, is there a link? Do they have a child, a dog or something? And then try and get to the heart with stories. So I'm, I don't think I've ever been, uh, you're a bad person. You know, you've got to change your ways and you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I was born that way. I, I couldn't do that. I'm not made to do that. But even befriending people that, you know, and getting companies that, that, that traditional activists are go, you can't work with that company or you shouldn't talk to that person. I love the idea that you say, well, can't, but can't we get them to see like fighting with them? Isn't going to help. Can't we just be human with them and show them, get them to change, get them to change course, get them to invest in the environment, get them to invest in animals. And that feels like such a radically different approach. Well, it works. It did <laughs> I mean, work. You know, and you can't, a lot of animal rights people stopped talking to me when I sat down with the, with the people in the medical research labs. They said, how can you sit with them? And I said, if you don't talk to people, how can you possibly expect their change? Right. Well, it's no good pointing a finger and saying, stop, you're wrong, because they're just going to find ways of telling you you're wrong. But then ultimately, going through and showing films and, and educating, like you, you, you were able to gain access to then educate people to effectively do what you wanted them to do, which was to stop, you know, the, the certain kinds of, of research. I mean, it, do you ever feel a sense of, aha, I was right? Or do you, 
how, how do you sort of keep pride and ego out of the equation when you're trying to accomplish things? Because that can be such a dangerous thing with people. It's easy. There's so much left to do. I mean, you know, what have I accomplished? Out of what I would like to accomplish out here, it's probably that much. You really think that? Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, we've still got research labs. We've still got people burning fossil fuel. We've still got forests disappearing. Uh, We've still got climate crisis. We've still got people not realizing that it's our what we're doing to animals and the environment that's led to this pandemic, as was predicted by science years and years ago. And, you know, so there's so much to educate. That's why my Roots and Shoots program for youth, to me, is probably the most important thing, because they're going to carry on when I'm gone. Well, yes, and also the idea that it can be difficult to change an adult's mind. But if No, it's not. Oh, it's but not it's, difficult. It, well, some, yes. I mean, there are certain people, a person in your country, I wouldn't even try to change his mind. What mind? I don't see a mind there at all. <laughs> I wonder if... People, if you, if you broach them right. I tell you, I was in a cab with a, with a driver who knew who I was, and he ranted at me all the way to Heathrow. You're like my sister. She does stuff with animals. Um, there's all these starving people, blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. So I told him stories. I told him about the chimps. I told him how we're helping people in Africa. Um, it didn't make any difference. When we got to Heathrow, uh, he didn't have change and he owed me 10 pounds. So I said, give it to your sister. I didn't think he would. I got back after two weeks, letter from his sister. One, thank you so much for your donation. Two, what did you do to my brother? <laughs> I mean, normally I wouldn't have known. It's always worth trying. Yeah. And he's been three times to help me when I volunteer at the rescue center. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that's just from talking and listening to people. Yes, and telling him stories. (laughs) So was any of this cultivated with, I mean, when you're living among chimpanzees, you obviously must have had to be very empathetic and very... acutely aware of them. Did any of that teach you how to deal with people better? Well, I think probably my mother taught me in the first place. But you know, the weird thing is when I finally got to Cambridge and was told I'd done everything wrong, empathy wasn't supposed to be part of science. You've got to be cold and objective. And according to me, that's what's wrong with science. And I think it's softening because if you have empathy, then you intuitively think, well, I believe he or she is doing that because, and then you can use science to find out if you're right. But without the empathy, you might never get that aha moment. And where do you think that comes from? Like, why has that been, is it because they feel that emotion gets in the way and clouds I think, you know, in the, we're talking about the mid-60s now when I went to Cambridge to do a PhD, never having been to college, by the way. Right. And I think the animal behavior was a new, new um, branch of science, and they wanted to make it into hard science, which it can't be and shouldn't be. Right. So it's changed now, definitely changed. How did you know when you first got to Gumby 
how did you know, oh, I can interact with these chimps and they're not going to tear my head off? Like, how, how did you get that confidence or understand what was, what was the first moment when you first interacted with them where you knew, oh, I think I'm going to be okay. I think, I think I can do this. Well, I never, never thought that I couldn't do it. I was afraid there wouldn't be time. We only had money for six months to start with. The chimps ran away, ran away, ran away, ran away. And, you know, then fortunately, one chimpanzee, David Greybeard, began to lose his fear. And he's the one I saw fishing for termites, using and making tools, and that brought in the National Geographic. They said, okay, we'll carry on funding the research. And they sent Hugo van Lauwek to do film, and that's what took the story of the chimps around the world. The scientists had to believe what I was saying, finally, when they saw the film, as well as reading my descriptions. They had to believe it. Right. And when you came back and started, did you come back and start lecturing immediately? Did you have to, how do you assemble all of this data at the time? You're just well, when, when I was at Cambridge, all I had to do was write my thesis. And I had a fabulous um, supervisor, Robert Hind. He was one of the top two, three animal behavior people at the time. And he actually came to Gombe and then he really realized I was right. And <laughs> so... He helped me to put all my crazy new ideas in such a carefully thought out scientific way that I couldn't be criticized by the other scientists. And I love that. I love thinking how to do something logically and thinking through, yeah, but if that means that, then what does this mean and how do the two link together? It's something that absolutely fascinates me. Right, but it seems like your superpower is communication. Like, of all the amazing things you've done, communicating seems to be, like, your real superpower. Because even this idea in the documentary where you, you know, the idea of, like, well, it has to be about the head and the heart. That's not an easy balance for most people. Some people are either one or the other. But somehow, not only do you have this balance, but then you're able to communicate that to scores of different types of humans and non-humans at the same time. So where, when you're approaching a different person each time, what do you see? What do you think? Are you thinking, how do I unpack and communicate to them? Do you have one approach for everyone? Is it specific to each person? Completely specific comes from the moment. It comes, I think there's a, you know, talking to you, I get the sense of who you are as we talk. I, I never, pre- well, you prepare roughly what you're going to say and the points you want to make, but it varies. Like, I don't, I don't know, as a gift, I was born with it. I was born with it, probably my Welsh ancestry. <laughs> and how do you maintain a sense of calm and patience when, especially the work you're doing is not only so important to you, but to the world, And you know that a lot of people are just stubborn and for whatever reason just aren't going to listen. And you come up against people, I'm sure, who just have a wall up. How do you maintain your patience and how do you maintain your calmness in those moments? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I can't answer those deep philosophical questions about myself because it's just who I am. And fortunately, that's who I am. I mean, honestly... 
it may sound stupid, but I feel I'm on a mission and I'm here for a reason. And so I suppose that helps. And I'm very good at living in the moment. So when I'm talking to you now, I'm talking to you. I'm not doing anything else. Right. And, you know, and also, if you really have done your best, and I think this came from mum, if you've really, really tried and done your best and it still doesn't work, you can't go on hitting yourself. Right. But I feel like that's not a very common, that's not a very common trait anymore. You know, there's so much stimuli in the world that it feels like we're just overloaded all the time. I don't even know if we're able to process everything yeah, all at once. No, I, I don't. I refuse to have a cell phone. I don't have one. Really? No. Not, not even just a backup for safety. Oh, I'm going off on a thing. I better just have just in case. I've got, I've got a little clamshell and I use it. Uh, nobody knows the number. I don't know the number. <laughs> um, three people know the number. My sister and uh, the two people who organized my tour. Right. And I use it like, I'm here at this airport. Uh, where are you? When my sister's meeting me. That, But that's all I use it for. And what's interesting about that is that when you talk about being in the moment, sort of removing yourself from all of that other extraneous technology stuff, I, I would imagine allows you to be in the present as much as possible. I try. I mean, of course, I have email to do. Right. And now I'm doing video messaging, but that's very different from continually. Like people are just hooked onto their, you know, they're sending little texts and tweets all day long. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you would be addicted to it if you if you started getting into it at all? No. Yeah. That's not my thing. One of the things that, uh, the other thing that struck me was just sort of a, I guess just an acceptance of life issue, which is that each time you came up against something that you wanted to solve, you realized, oh, in order to solve, in order to solve the problem of the chimps, we have to talk about the culture and the environment and the earth. And it just feels like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So how do you not get overwhelmed? Yeah. I mean, it literally, it's grown so much one obvious thing leading to another. It's not as though it was all carefully planned out. You know, I flew over Gombe in 1990 and I saw what had been part of a great forest belt across Africa, a tiny island of trees and bare hills. Mm-hmm. And so it was obvious if we don't help the people, we can't help the chimps. So that that. And then traveling the world and learning about all the terrible things we're doing to the planet in spite of this brilliant intellect we have. Not surprising, young people were losing hope. And that led to the Roots and Shoots program, which is helping young people understand if you actually take action now and do your thing, and you know that thousands of other young people are doing their thing, then you start being able to think globally. So when people say, think globally, act locally, it's the wrong way around. Because if you think globally, you're depressed. Can't help it. Never thought of it that way. And I also, the idea that when people feel hopeless, most people just sit in that. Whereas you have this idea of like, okay, I don't see hope, so I'm going to create it. (laughs) I have to create the hope or seek it out, I guess. It's my signature now, hope. (laughs) Giving people hope. 
You know, because the kids said to me when I first began talking to them, and I, these were high school students, um, you've compromised our future, meaning adults, right. years, years, generations, and there's nothing we can do about it. We have compromised their future. We've stolen it. We're still stealing it, except right now it's stopped. The air's clean, and you can see the stars even in the cities. But they, I didn't agree with them when they said there was nothing that could be done. So that's when Roots and Shoots began. And, you know, its main message, each one of us makes some impact every single day, just in the little choices we make. Right. And that's, that gets people, I mean, so many people come up to me after lectures and say, I had given up hope, but I promise you I'll do my bit. Well, yeah, but I, I think that most people believe that they alone are insignificant, which is why people go, oh, I'm not going to vote. My vote doesn't count or I'm not going to do this. I'm just one person. No, I don't matter. How do we sort of infuse in the idea of people? Yes, you do matter because every person that's involved matters. It's the, it's the opposite. I say, no, if it was just you, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, but it's not just you. If everybody said, I'm one person, I don't make a difference, I'll do nothing. Nothing would get done. But if you know that you're not the only person, and that's why the Roots and Shoots community is like a family growing around the world, hundreds and thousands of young people from kindergarten, university, and everything in between. And it sticks with them, you know, and they realize they're not alone. We're a family. So people in China come up and say, of course I care about the environment. I was in Roots and Shoots in primary school. No, it's in 56, um, it's in 86. Wait a minute, I get it all wrong all the time. It's in 65 countries active right now. So because you are involved with a lot of things, obviously you have to, it's it's so interesting that you started as this kind of singular um, the singular movement. I mean, I know you were a part of a group and you work with Dr. Leakey, but you know, you're out working with chimps and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you're a really kind of a movement and you over you you have to like delegate. How are you comfortable delegating, you know, or if it were up yeah. to you, would you be really deeply involved with everything and every level and every detail? No, only thing I really insist on being involved with, I will not have people write something because I'm asked so much, so many write about this and blurbs and forwards. And so. If it's got my name on it, okay, you can draft something, but I'm not, it's going to be me that writes it. Right, right. It's got to be. So I have to be deeply involved in that. And then the rest is an overview. I mean, I have such amazing teams, credible team in the U.S., fantastic in Tanzania, the ones looking after the chimps in South Africa, Chimpedon, um, ones in uh, Chimpunga in Congo, just amazing people who just somehow appear at the right time in the right place. Were you comfortable talking in front of people? Were you comfortable being a speaker early on? <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> I, for the, the first time I had to speak, I, I literally felt I couldn't breathe. I was a very shy child. I never spoke at school. 
Really? And you, were you, were you very self-conscious or did you just sort of feel like, what, what, what were you feeling in those moments where you just felt like you, you couldn't really be a part of what was going on? Yeah, well, it was 5,000 people in dark Constitution Hall. And I thought, well, I can't do this. I was too shy. But it worked. I mean, there it was. It, it actually, when I was in front of the people, they pulled something from me. And that's how it's always been. But I guess I guess that has a lot to do with having a, a purpose or a mission. Yeah. Because if you have a purpose or a mission that's larger than you, and it's not just for yourself, would you say it's fair to say that you always at least have that to fall back on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when I first went to college, to university, back in the mid-60s, uh, I wrote a popular book, I, the Geographic had said that was one of the parts of the deal. And the book came out. I was very nearly sent away because scientists did not write popular books. Oh, wow. I, every word in this book is as true as I know how, how it could be. But what's the point of just studying something and keeping it stuck in an ivory tower? I want people to know. I want people to understand. I want people to realize animals aren't just things. They have personalities and minds and emotions. They're sentient. And I was taught that by my dog. Here's my dog behind me. You see him. He he was my childhood companion. Is that Rusty? Rusty? Yes, that's Rusty. You had to have the strength of conviction, though, to know that that even in the face of people saying, no, this is this is this is rubbish. We don't have to listen to this. People don't work that way. You still had the confidence to to push ahead. But in those moments, did you experience self doubt, or was that just never part of the equation at all? Oh yes, of course it was. And then I would go and think it all through, like when I first took money from an oil company, and. So I thought, okay, let me think this thing through. That was Conoco before it joined up with DuPont and Philips and so on. And they were the most ethical oil company I've ever met, actually. And so I said to myself, I'm flying in planes, driving in cars, um, using electricity. I'm using the products of these companies. So how flippin' hypocritical if you can't say, I'd love to take your money, Um, let's work together to do things better and better and better. And, you know, I wouldn't take money from all oil companies because some of them, they're terrible. But, you know, so thinking things through logically, that was what science taught me to do. But they did build this incredible reserve. You, You influenced Conoco to build this incredible reserve to save all these chimpanzees who were in abysmal conditions. Yes, and, and Conoco really was, I mean, they would, they would have people walk on the ground to do a seismic line. They would drop food from helicopters so they didn't have great trucks destroying the forest. Mm-hmm. If anybody took bushmeat, the whole crew would be denied a bonus that week. I mean, they, they really, really did things right. And, of course, they were so right that they... They didn't make it commercially there, but actually they didn't find oil um, in sufficient quantities. If they had, we worked out, the, the, the director of exploration, we'd worked out exactly how this part would be used to get the oil and 
that would protect all this huge area around it. We have, have that map still somewhere. Uh, in Gambi, did you have a place like a like a special place that you would go to reflect? Was there like a reflection point? Can you can you just kind of describe your favorite place there for me? Well, there were two. One, the peak that I found early on, which overlooks two valleys. And with my binoculars, I was there for hours, and I slept up there sometimes. And you know, it's a it's a very special place. And the other's the waterfall, the Casacela waterfall which drops 80 feet, and that's where the chimpanzees sometimes do their, their amazing waterfall displays, the hair out and stamping in the water and swinging into the spray on the vines. And then sometimes you see their eyes at the end, and they sit and they see this water coming down, and then they see it flowing away. What is it? It's always coming. It's always going, but it's always here. I think that could, if they could speak, they could share what they were feeling. That could lead to an early animistic religion, you know, the water of the sun and the stars and things that the early early humans didn't understand. Right. And what does it mean? I, I had read that you, um, it said that you were, uh, in the chimpanzee hierarchy, you had a lower position within their hierarchy, right? No, I wasn't part of it. You were what? You weren't, you weren't part of it? Out of it, no. I I tried to be like looking in from outside. Okay, there was a time, and you see it in the movie, yes. and when we had a banana feeding station, I could interact with the chimps. Mm-hmm. We stopped that ages ago because we, we can give them their diseases; they can give us theirs. Right. And but you know, at the beginning, it was common. The, the one or two people doing studies mostly did feeding stations, and. Um, but I didn't ever want to be part of the hierarchy. I wanted to stand away and observe. And it became irritating after a bit when they got too near. I wanted to see their normal behavior. <laughs> they wanted to study you. <laughs> I wanted to, if their Frodo knock me over. <laughs> oh, yeah, I read about him. He was, I, I, I was reading that, you know, um, when you first got there, you, you, you experienced all this really amazing behavior that you hadn't expected. And then slowly over time, you started to see a more aggressive side of the chimps. And that one in particular, Frodo sounded like he was maybe not the nicest uh, chimpanzee. He was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like horrible people, he had a soft side too. He loved babies. He was so gentle with them. So what is it that you're learning when you're when you're observing all of a sudden, you know, aggressive behavior, warlike behavior? What does that tell you about does that inform anything about people as well? Are you seeing like the you know, the basis for human behavior? Is it giving you a better understanding of us? Yeah, and that's why Leaky sent me. He believed there was a common ancestor about six million years ago, chimp like, human like. And so he felt, well, if Jane sees behavior today similar or the same in chimps and humans, possibly that's been brought with our two species from that common ape-like, human-like ancestor. And that, he thought, would give him a better feeling for how early humans might have behaved because he spent his life searching for their fossilized remains, right. behavior and fossilized. So, you know, finding they have a dark side like us 
make, made me feel at a time when this was a kind of political thing, whether it's nature or nurture. Are we born with a clean slate and learn aggression, or is there some innate aggression in us? And I came out on the side of innate aggression. Like, honestly, look around the world today. It's very hard to say we're not. We don't have some innately aggressive tendencies. But just as we are capable of violence and war, like the, like the chimps, so too love, compassion and altruism. And our greater capacity, because of our intellect and our language, for trying to understand should, and in men, most cases I think it does, control the way we behave. We control our aggressive impulses mostly. We may use them in words, but, you know, you may say I could kill him, but you don't actually kill him. Did you ever feel that your? did you ever feel that you were in imminent danger? I mean, if an aggressive chimp is coming at you, they're essentially, you know, they can cause a lot of harm. Did you ever feel unsafe or did you understand, well, if I keep a certain distance, uh, how, how did you, how did you feel safe in such a, a different environment? When Frodo was after me, um, he would come from 40, 40 meters away to grab me, drag me and stamp on me. Oh my and you can't keep a distance if a chimp wants to get close. You can't do it. And yeah, he's probably 10 times stronger than me. But the thing is, he actually was just showing off. If he'd wanted to kill me, I wouldn't be here now. Right. Right, right, right. They are very strong. They don't know their strength. So it's basically just like a person beating their chest and barking and right, right, yeah. right. Just to show like, oh, I'm a tough person. They do the same yeah. exact stuff. So you see two male chimps, you know, having a dominance conflict, showing off to each other, standing upright, swaggering, or making a furious scowl. Doesn't that remind you of certain politicians? <laughs> I think it reminds me of a lot of politicians, not even just politicians, but just people. I feel like social media has allowed us to draw out most of those kind of, you know, basic early hominids, you know, types of uh, behavior patterns, you know, like screaming and chest beating, finger pointing and puffing up and performing, you know. And it's mostly with chimps, you know, they try to avoid physical contact because it could be dangerous for them. Right. So they like to do it by, you know, bluffing. But they will fight when it comes to it. Why do you think people don't see the connection? What do you think it is that makes some people think that humans are so much better? I think maybe they've never shared their life with an animal. I think they just, you know, and that's that's one of the things that Roots and Shoots is, is about, is, is helping people understand, children understand. And, you know, little videos out there now on YouTube that are absolutely priceless. I... You can't watch some of them and not realize that animals are sentient beings. So, so can you talk a little bit about how to, if someone wants to help, if someone wants to be a better citizen of the world, can you talk about how to cultivate empathy or how to, how to, um, how to instill it into other people? You know, just some, ideas of listening and talking and getting involved for people who might be 
especially for people who grew up on devices and not necessarily interacting in person, even though we can't at the moment, can you just talk a little bit about cultivating patience, empathy, all those really beautiful things that allow us to connect in a, in a real deep way? Well, I never try to teach people that. I just tell stories about it and hope that they'll want to go and sit and watch nature because I'm utterly staggered by how much people miss and how sad that is. You know, I can be walking through an airport and there's two little sparrows and something amazing is going on and everybody just walks by. Nobody notices and they miss so much. So with with our Roots and Shoots, we really try and get young children. If we can't take them into nature, we try and bring nature to them. Right. And it it makes a huge difference. But and as we know, animals can calm down nervous people. They can they can help with post traumatic stress disorder. They can help autistic children learn to read. Uh, they they contact with an animal is absolutely amazing. As we're sort of wrapping this up, we just have a few minutes left with you. I just want to say happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Did you do I mean, I imagine you were in quarantine for your birthday. Were you able to do anything? No, we didn't do anything. And, um, you know, there's six of us in the house, but we try and keep segregated to some extent. Sure. So sister and I, she shares my birthday. We had supper in one room and her daughter and, and um, fiancé had supper in another room. And the Judy's two grandsons grown up now, more or less. They had supper separately too. So we had, you know, I said, we should really have a Zoom connection. Between <laughs> How do you and your sister have the exact same birthday? That Those are astronomical odds. You're not twins. No, we're not twins. No, we're not even alike. Not a bit. <laughs> really? Yeah. So just as part of, um, I don't know, a, a birthday reflection, I guess, uh, what are you hoping to achieve still? I mean, obviously there's a never-ending list of things yeah. to do, but what are your top priorities right now? Growing the youth program, or the youth movement, I should say. More and more roots and shoots. We just started in the Middle East. We're sort of everywhere now, but we've got a long way to go in Latin America. Yeah. But, you know, once it gets going and you get the right people, it takes off. Like it's sweeping across India right now. Oh, fantastic. How's the Roots and Shoots program doing in America? It's going going pretty well. It went through a bad time when the Jane Goodall Institute wanted to make money out of it, but that little phase went away and people changed. The people, you know, new people. Now it's back to how it's supposed to be. Grassroots movement, young people choosing what they want to do because then they act with passion. Mm-hmm. And in Tanzania, the when the when there's a gathering from different parts of the city or wherever, uh, I found that at the end of a meeting when they've been exchanging ideas and stuff, they were saying together we can, and so I said yes we can, but will we? Mm-hmm. The difference. So now they all end up saying together we can, together we will, and I was at a big. Talk. I had a 12-minute slot to talk at a, the second biggest music festival in Europe. 
and I got 16,000 people all standing up saying, together we can, together we will save the world. <laughs> That's fantastic. What can people do if they... What can people do if there's not a Roots and Shoots program in their community? Start one. Just start one. Yeah. I mean, we like you to register. It doesn't cost anything, but we like to share. We've got lots of ideas and suggestions, um, but we like to share what the different groups are doing. But anybody can start a Roots and Shoots group just like that. And we're now starting in prisons in some countries, and we've had Roots and Shoots in um, retirement homes works really well in China. The old people say we thought we'd finished, but now we know we've got another chance. Right. Yeah. I've been following your work for a long time, and I guess I just find it um, refreshing that someone is able to bridge these worlds, find commonality between not just us in the animal kingdom, but also which we were a part of but also just people. I mean, again, it feels like your superpower is finding commonality and communicating. Um, and uh, I, I really do think that will be a tremendous part of your legacy and, and hopefully one that people take away, not just, hey, we have to conserve the environment, but also learning how to educate, not just that we have to educate, but learning how to communicate and educate. Yeah, because only if you do it right does it really sink in. You know, some people can teach a subject for years, but it's so boring the way they do it that that people they're trying to teach don't really learn anything. That it's really about the stories and the connection to the stories. The stories and the connections, yeah. Is and people, you know, some people are so determined to get to the top of a certain, uh, you know, certain something they want to do whether it's maths or physics or or nature or whatever that they're prepared to learn in a boring way but these days you can you can learn an awful lot in a non-boring way on the internet just have to be careful that you're you're looking at something that's factual and not (laughs) it's so hard to know sometimes it's just so hard to know what's real or not i know um, as we're as we're wrapping this out, can you just describe one specific thing that brings you joy in a time when everyone is home and scared and the world seems like such a, a terrifying place? What's a good? What brings you joy? What what keeps hope alive for you? Well, think thinking about all that the young people are doing thinking how nature can take over. Right now with this lockdown around the world, you know, it's going to be the cleanest air on Earth Day for probably 50 years since it began. Right. And nature has this amazing ability to to come back. We give it a chance. And, you know, I'm looking out of the window now and the setting sun is coming through the leaves of the copper beach. And it's just so beautiful. And there's a blackbird, I heard him singing just now. And you can see this even in the middle of a city. And we're, you know, working to get more and more urban farming, urban gardening, greening up the cities, green walls, green stuff growing on the roof. I think the biggest hope is that people are changing. There's a swell of people who understand that 
that our intensive factory farms are harming the environment and releasing methane and adding to adding to climate change and also providing opportunity to, for viruses to jump from these poor animals to us. It's happened several times. So, so maybe, you know, we're changing, we're understanding. And that's the big hope. And this crisis we're going through now, you know, either we're going to emerge as different people, all the people who for the first time got clean air, can see the stars above. If enough people don't want to go back to the old pollution, maybe it'll be sufficient groundswell to change business and politics. I don't know, but that that's the hope. So there's an opportunity for a little bit of a reset. Yeah, there's a, it's a perfect opportunity. And at least we might, might learn how to be respectful of animals and nature, if nothing else. Well, and I think part of that is not just seeing ourselves as separate or not seeing ourselves as humans are up here, everything else is down here, but seeing us as a, as a functioning community yeah. member of nature. We're a part of it. And we rely on the natural world for food, for clothing, for uh, clean air, for regulating the temperature and the rainfall. We're part of it. We can't live without it. So if we go on destroying it, we destroy ourselves ultimately. And that's all these poor young people whose fault it is not. In spite of that, though, I, I do hope that you um, uh, understand and appreciate uh, everything that you've accomplished, that you feel a sense of, of, of great satisfaction. I'm, I'm very happy about the Roots and Shoots program. I'm very happy that more and more people understand the true nature of animals. Um, but all the different things I've done that come to light in this film fills me with amazement. I don't know how it happened. I didn't plan it. I didn't work for it. I didn't want to gain this, what do I call it? Notoriety is perhaps not a good word, but... People say, oh, you're an icon. Well, I didn't want to be an icon. But when I discovered that's what people thought, I thought, all right, then I must use it. Right. So you meet people, uh, or I used to, in an airport. <gasps> Can I do a selfie? Well, and you give them a little brochure and say, get your children involved in Roots and Shoot, that sort of thing. Oh, it that, works. That's fantastic. I, I just can't thank you enough for just being so wonderful to talk to and giving me an hour of your time. And also for just making everything human, like just providing humanity. Maybe humanity is not, is, is not even, because that seems to exclude the animal kingdom as well, but just putting yeah. a very empathetic uh, point of view onto things. And you really infuse that into everything that you do. And I just honestly can't thank you enough for, for being you. you and for your time. I think the main important word is respect. We should respect each other. We should respect animals. We should respect nature. I hope you stay safe and healthy. And uh, thank you so much. You too. Have a wonderful evening. Okay. You as well. Goodbye. Bye. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito.